Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth about having a heart after God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God rules in their heart. As long as I see myself in poverty of spirit, man, I am rich. But the minute I think that I'm getting along okay, then I become poor. Because then I start depending on myself. Poverty of spirit. A proper perspective of who I am. Never lose sight of that. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. So does anybody remember pet rocks? Or how about Cabbage Patch dolls? Fads will come and go, and unfortunately, so will run-of-the-mill Christians, never minding Scripture commands us to run with endurance the race set before us. Well, today, Pastor Xavier takes us to the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 5, as he shows us what it takes to make a difference as a child of God. Let's join him for today's challenging message called A Disciple of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of a number of major discourses that are found in the Gospel of Matthew. But the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most familiar or the most popular of them all. Men who have been in awe of it, as I'm sure you have if you've read it, it's been called the Magna Carta of the Kingdom. It's been called the Sinai of the New Testament. It's been called the Manifesto of the Kingdom. Here in these three chapters, we have Jesus Christ speaking to His disciples in such a way that is foundational for each and every one of us as Christians. He really is speaking about character in these first 12 verses. The relationship of the individual to the Kingdom. There are three things we want to observe about disciples of Christ. Let me read the verses, but we will be looking at what disciples do, who disciples are, and what disciples can expect. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice the first two verses. Here we get what disciples do. First we notice that disciples of Jesus are from the multitudes of people. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. There is nothing different between you and I from those who are not here this morning because they have no concern for God. We are included in that multitude. We are not here by any virtue of our own splendor, of our own purity, of our own merit. 
And so first of all, disciples of Christ see themselves as part of the multitude of humanity. They see themselves as no better than those who do not know God. Notice that before he begins here the Sermon on the Mount, they had been called by Jesus in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, at least four of them. They were from the multitudes, and Jesus went and he called them out as he did you and I. But then they became distinct from the multitude. Though they interweave among the multitudes, though they lived out there with the multitudes, they were distinct from the multitudes. This is one of the chief factors of what disciples do. They live in the world, but not of the world. They are among the multitudes, but they're not of the multitudes. But the only thing that should distinguish us from those who do not know God is the way we live. Not the way we dress. Not by what we say. Not by how often we go to church. Not by how many sermons we've heard. But how I live. This is the primary characteristic of one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. His life is like no other in the world. Distinct. Absolutely. This distinctiveness is seen in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4. And that as Jesus taught and he preached and he healed the multitudes... Many of them were following him for the very benefit and the personal gain. While these disciples were not. Now, they didn't have it all together. In back of their mind, they thought the kingdom was going to be set up. Their, their theology was kind of messed up too. But they were totally distinct from this multitude. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me in John 10, 27. I hope you're here because you've heard the call of God, and you've come out from the multitudes to hear his voice. So that you can be all that he desires you to be. Notice also that disciples of Jesus are taught by Jesus. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, you see, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and the word disciple just means a learner, a pupil, is one who doesn't affiliate church or gatherings or activity with just activity for activity's sake. Not just to integrate, to not be alone. Let me say that there are a lot of people who go to church because they just are lonely. But that should not be the motive for coming. The motive should be because you want to be taught of Jesus then that speaks of discipline, to sit at his feet. As a disciple, you're taught and I'm taught, and therefore my discretion is always what Jesus says. The scriptures are the standard. The scriptures are, are the means to my life and the ends to my life. The scriptures is what convicts me, what guides me, what, what really gives me direction for life. I do not set my standards by the world. And yet at the same time, I have to remember I'm in the multitude, lest I isolate myself to the place where I don't affect the world and I become self-righteous. 
That's always a danger. We'll see that through here in the Beatitudes. But they come, they sit, and they're taught by Jesus Christ. There are many times that we can be taught by men and we learn information and facts, but it doesn't become truth in our heart. Then all of a sudden we're walking through life and God puts us in a circumstance and situation that we have nowhere else to turn but to Him, and then He, he teaches us that truth that we've known all along. And there's a difference between having truth and knowing truth. One of it is warming your hands at the fire, and the other one is walking through the fire. There's a big difference. This is what disciples do. Very simple, very basic, but don't miss it. From there, Jesus teaching the disciples. He goes from verses 3 through 9 to tell us who disciples are. And please again, he is teaching his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the multitudes. The multitudes could never handle this or do this, which is another mistake of people. They think the Beatitudes are do-attitudes. They're be-attitudes. It's what you are, not what you do. These Beatitudes have nothing to do with doing. They have everything to do with being. You're not out there trying to do things to show you're a human being. You are a human being. Now, what kind of a human being will be determined by what you do? And so these be-attitudes should never be mistaken for do-attitudes. Notice that from verse 3 through 9, these Beatitudes mark characteristics of Christian character, which are interrelated and interdependent one upon the other. They're after the synthetic parallel of Hebrew poetry. The second line completes the meaning of the first line. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then the second line, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Jews were familiar to this type of teaching. The Proverbs are much like that. Some of them in two, some of them in three couplets, depending what it is. The book of Job has some poetry. It's in the book of poetries. The first four are passive. The next three are active. The last two are consequential. So depending how you count the Beatitudes, some see only eight, combining the last two, and others see nine, taking them individually. Take your pick. It makes no difference. Just make sure you understand them. Let's look at the first. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed is translated happy by most commentators. Um, but it should never be confused and it should always be distinguished from the happiness of chance that is in the world on situations and circumstances. The happiness here that is, is declared by the word blessed um, declares of that heavenly blessing from God upon the individual who is living and walking in the sphere of the Spirit. It does not depend upon the exterior. It does not depend on the circumstance. It depends on who I am and what is happening in me, between me and God. Who I am in Christ Jesus. 
The word poor means extreme poverty to the point of destitute. To the point of destitution. And yet in this context here, the, the very root meaning of the word means to crouch or to cower. And as we think of that, we think of a person who is just broken. One who just can do nothing for themselves. But in the context here, certainly it does not mean poor material-wise. For not all the poor are blessed. Though many of them are. And so it cannot mean to material gain. Then it has to mean spiritual. And so when he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit, it speaks of one who sees himself in extreme and total poverty of spirit regarding personal worth or merit before God. You see yourself as you really are. Because now the comparison is you to God. Not you to me. Not you to another one who's worse than you. But you to God. It's the cry of Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's the cry of Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. It's that person who sees themselves as totally separated from God, in and of themselves, having no right to come to God. It's opposite to pride. Nebuchadnezzar says, I. God says, you were. And he made him an animal for some seasons. The church of Laodicea says, hey, I'm rich. I have, I have need of nothing. And God says, you're blind, poor, and naked, and you don't even know it. It's the spiritual and proper perspective as to who I am. This runs contrary to everything we hear in school today. Some of you guys and girls are in school, in high school, college. You hear it all the time. You've heard it for 12 years, 14, 15 years. You get bombarded with the meism, the I, through the TV, through the radio, through the media, through the magazines, through everything, through your friends. For that very reason... We do what we do in the world today without any conviction or conscience because we believe that we are God. And when you do away with God, then the standard is lowered. Then you don't attempt such high goals. First of all, because you're very familiar with men. And second of all, you need to excuse men. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who agree with God. They are partakers of the benefit of the kingdom now because they agree with God. God says, you're a sinner. You're lost. You're separated from me. And there's no way you can deserve heaven, but I can give it to you. Your sin separates you from me. I crucified my son to take that place. If you will believe and accept and open your heart, I will come in. It's I agreeing with God, not God agreeing with me. It's me being open to the illuminating work of God to see myself as I really am and who I really am. See, for the most part, most of us think we're okay. 
But when the light of Jesus Christ came in and we saw ourselves as we really were, it was devastating, wasn't it? If you, if you haven't got that picture yet, hang around. You'll get it. And every once in a while as Christians, we move on in life and we think, well, we're doing pretty good. And then the Lord shows us our reality. And then once again, we're wiped out again, aren't we? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God rules in their heart. But the basic foundation is right here, poverty of spirit. As long as I see myself in poverty of spirit, man, I am rich. But the minute I think that I'm getting along okay, then I become poor. I'm really not rich. Because then I start depending on myself. And so as a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is the very foundation of everything in my life. Poverty of spirit. A proper perspective of who I am. Never lose sight of that. You're liable to lose sight. Absolutely. Second Beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word mourn means heartbreaking lament over tragic death. As a matter of fact, it is use of uh, Jacob's grief over Joseph's death in Genesis 37-34 in the Septuagint. But to use this scripture to comfort those at a funeral is out of context, for that is not what it's speaking about. But it's interesting that the word that is used here is used for a funeral, speaking of deep grief, sorrow, and anguish. But the context itself dictates that it speaks about mourning over one's sinfulness and depravity. The first beatitude said, I'm bankrupt. The second beatitude says, I'm a sinner. I'm bankrupt in terms of coming to God and anything on my own, but the second beatitude says, I'm a sinner. In my nature, I am depraved. And so in the second beatitude, I see myself in my sinfulness. And I mourn for my sin, seeing that my sin was against God. Usually we think of our actions against people. Well, yeah, I did this with this guy, and I did this with that girl, and I did this to this guy, and I did this to that girl, and whatever. And we think of that aspect. But David says, Lord, against you and only you have I sinned. Hey, he slept with Bathsheba, he killed Uriah. What are you talking about, David? He had the proper perspective. The primary offense of sin is me against God. And here it speaks about the disciple who mourns over his sinfulness, over his sin. Not just the consequences. Many people cry over their consequences. Not because you got busted, but because you really see that your sin is an offense against the holiness of God and it separates you and it's just God's grace that you're not barbecued. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That in context speaks of the believer. See, I have to continually confess sin until the day I go home. I no longer practice sin, but I constantly and forever 
will fall into sin because I'm imperfect. But I don't practice sin any longer. There's a difference. I'm just a bad shot and I missed the mark. And when that happens, there's a mourning, there's a grieving because I know what sin does to me. It breaks fellowship with God. It, it, it separates me from Him. It cuts off the benefit from heaven. It hinders my prayers. It puts me to the side till I agree with God. Amos 3.3 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And if I harbor sin and keep sin in my life and think that I have fellowship with God and say I have fellowship with God, I lie and don't have the truth and I make God out to be a liar, the Bible says. And so there's a deep mourning over my sinfulness, over my failure, over my own depravity. Even though I don't commit sin, I am fully aware of my depravity. I don't know about you. But I am fully aware as I walk with God of how sinful the potential that I have. Because if you examine the whole Sermon on the Mount, the problem in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is exactly that. Your heart and mine. It's evil, desperately wicked. Only God can know it. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, everything else. It comes. Your heart is the, is the well and your tongue is just the bucket that brings it up. <laughs> and your hands and your members. And as you walk with God, then you are going to be very aware of your own depravity. My kids many times think they're deprived, but they're really depraved. We lose sight of that. Peter wept over his own sinfulness. As he denied Jesus Christ, he went out weeping and crying. But notice that it says, For they shall be comforted. You see, as long as I acknowledge my sinfulness, I know where I'm at, I can come to God, and he says that I have an advocate for the defense. I have lawyer, a lawyer, 1 John 2, 1 for my defense, and He makes intercession for me, I can come and confess my sin, and He cleanses me from all unrighteousness. But I'm not practicing sin. I'm doing my best to walk. I am striving. I am agonizing. I am fighting. I am running. I'm going for it. And when I fall, I'm to confess to Him, and He will comfort me. Now, the comfort is always absolute if there's true, genuine confession and repentance. But the consequences from that failure will depend upon the severity of it here in life. Sometimes I can fail somewhere, and God will forgive me, and that's it. And about the only consequence I have is the condemnation of Satan and myself. At other times, your failure or mine can be more severe to where you have affected another life or lives and the consequences can be very tragic. And though God is able to comfort you, you will have to live with such consequences for the rest of your life. That is not punishment. That's just consequences. It has nothing to do with your forgiveness. You're forgiven. David is a classic example. And David had to live with those consequences. The sword never departed from his house. I'm sure that his popularity went down like George Bush's. And um, he had a rough time. You study his life, David was never the same. David was forgiven. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a tremendous man, but David was never the same. 
you remember that about your sin, you better strive and agonize against it because you have no control of the consequences. All you have control is whether you do it or not. They shall be comforted. Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth about sin. And you can request a copy of today's challenging study from the book of Matthew called A Disciple of Christ. It's available on CD for just $4. And this is one message you'll want to share with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. The title to ask for once again is A Disciple of Christ, or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for including the call letters of this station when you contact us. Now, with so many Christians, why aren't there more disciples? We'll find out when you join Pastor Xavier Reese next time on Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com